Matthew 13, verses 44 through uh, 46 is where we'll be this morning. Um, for the first time, I've, I noticed kind of a strange paradox during uh, the holiday season, and it's this paradox between Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Um, Thanksgiving, you have, you, you are, you, you're gathered around with family and friends, you're taking Instagram pictures of food and dogs uh, with bows on their heads, um, and you take pictures, hopefully, of your family, um, and you remember what has happened in your life. You remember good things that, that God's done in your life. You're thankful, and you're reflecting on those things. And for a, like for a few hours, you really start to realize, I'm, I'm pretty content. I'm pretty, I'm pretty content. And then the next day, everyone loses their minds. <laughs> everyone goes insane. And so they go crazy over video games and flat screen TVs and toasters, and they will stand in line and wait to get the best deal. And it's the opposite of contentment. It's just crazy. And so you have this paradox of joy and contentment and thanksgiving, and I'm, I'm grateful for all that I have. And then the next day is I will kill for more. And it just, I never understood why those two things are back to back. It's just an irony. Um, but, but what's funny about Black Friday is it really exposes what people value. It, it really does. Um, because none of us in this room, if, if our boss were to call us in and say, I want you to work the day after Thanksgiving, and part of you working is you standing outside in the freezing cold before the office opens with a bunch of crazy people who are all jacked up on caffeine and turkey, and you have to stand in this crowd. And then once the office doors open, everyone's going to run in frantically, and they are going to stampede. They're going to run over you. And you, you would never, and then they would say, well, we're going to pay you the amount of money, and it's the same amount of money that you would save on the TV. And you wouldn't do it. You'd be like, I'm appalled that he would even ask me to come in on this day. I'm not ever doing that. That's crazy that he would ask me that. But no one tells you to do it, and you would do it willingly. This is the strangest thing to me that you would put yourself through. If someone gave you the amount of money that you would save, you probably wouldn't do it. So why on earth do we do this? Well, we like the thrill of it. We like the idea of competition. We like the idea we can elbow someone a little bit and nudge and I got this. No one else has it. It's some, somewhat of the prize in it. I got a prize here. I've, I've, I've got this thing that no one else got. I've got this deal that no one is, is exclusive for me. We have that, right? A little bit of that. And so we, we will do whatever it takes to get that thing. And it and what it does, it exposes what we really value. It exposes uh, what we really treasure. So I'm not like speaking against Black Friday. I don't want you to hear this wrong. I'm just showing you the irony in it of how we often are exposed when we're confronted with things like that, of how we will do so much for something that we love. And so I, I'm convinced of this truth, and this is true throughout Scripture that we will live and die for what we actually and, uh, and truly love. And this is something that Jesus consistently talks about throughout the Gospels. You will see him tell his disciples from time to time that they would travel lightly. You'll see him tell them, you'll see Jesus tell his disciples that the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You, you see him tell them that if they lose their life, they will gain their life. And there's this consistent if you love me enough, you'll show that you display that you love me by 
your action. We will know that you truly value me by how you sacrifice for me. That's a consistent message of the Gospels. It's a consistent message of Christ. It's not an easy message. It's a very difficult message to hear, is it not? But here, let me show you the most more familiar one. And when we unpack this, I want to unpack this verse in Luke 12, because it will help us understand where we're going in Matthew 13 a little bit better, right? Luke 12, verse 32. This is one of the more familiar statements that Jesus says on this particular subject. Luke 12, verse 32. It says this, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Notice what he says, sell your possessions, Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in in the heavens that does not fail. Where where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Here's the famous line that everyone remembers. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Anybody ever heard these words of Jesus? These are very familiar words. These are probably the most familiar words and most explicit words that Jesus does when he challenges what we truly value. They're very clear. They're very concise. But let me say this. Ironically, they are often very misunderstood words. People will often take these words out of context, and they will take it to mean something else. So we're going to come back to Luke 12, but what I want to show you is in Matthew 13, what you see in Luke 12 and Matthew 13, the exact same concept of Jesus challenging the heart of what we truly value or what we truly treasure. And so my goal today is to answer that question, why does Jesus consistently challenge this issue of what we value and what we treasure? And why is this so important for us today in 2013? All right, do you want to do that this morning? We good? Y'all awake? All right, good. Matthew 13, verses 44. Let's read. The word of God says this. This is Jesus' words to his disciples. It says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his, notice the word, joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. So here you have Jesus, who's with his disciples at this point. I'll explain a little bit of the context in a moment. He's with his disciples at this point, and he tells them of this story of a man who buries or he finds a hidden treasure in a field. Now, this is a strange thing. Why would someone bury a treasure in a field? Well, in this culture, they didn't have a a banking system as we know it today. They had money changers, and there was some interest and some of those things. But typically, what would happen if someone had a value, something that was of great value, they would bury it. And they did that in the the Palestinian uh, culture. They would bury their most valuable things because if if war came, they could go back after war and retrieve it. As a matter of fact, I think it was the um, uh, famous Jewish historian Josephus. He writes, "The, the gold and the silver and the rest of the most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners treasured underground was done to withstand the fortunes of war. So people would bury 
gold and jewelry and whatever nice furniture they'd have, money they'd have, they would bury it. And this is how they would protect themselves from losing it. In other words, they buried what was most treasured, and the greater the value, the greater the links one would go through in order to protect and preserve this treasure. So if a man were to find a buried treasure in a hidden field, this must have been something, in a field, it must have been something extremely valuable. Now, I don't want us to get distracted by this, the, the details of this parable like some often do. Some will say, well, whose field is it? What's this guy doing wandering on a field that doesn't belong to him? Some people will try to take it away from its meaning and try to figure it out. Or, or well, okay, if he, if, he, if he finds this hidden thing and he then tries to go buy it, why does he let the owner know that there's a hidden treasure found on his property? I mean, this doesn't seem like a very ethical thing to do. So we can get crazy here. And remove ourselves from the meaning. Now, what do, we have, what do we said the last two weeks? Parables have one meaning, right? So we're not going to get caught up in all the details. And the, the reason why is because Jesus is making a very simple and clear point. It's not complex at all. And by the way, a parable is an analogy. It's an analogy to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And if you know anything about an analogy, an analogy breaks down at some point. But so there's a simple meaning that Jesus is trying to say here. So let me give you the context. Jesus has spoken to crowds and crowds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. As Jesus is traveling, they're leaving their homes, they're shutting down their their stores, and they're coming out to hear Jesus speak. And we just heard Jesus preach some very difficult things, and he did that in a way of parables. As these crowds were gathered around him on the shore, he gets a boat out, he stands on the boat, and he speaks to the crowds of hundreds and hundreds of people. He then tells his, the crowds, hey, this message isn't for you, by the way. This is for my disciples whom I've chosen to be mine. And he then gives examples of wheats and tares. He gives examples of, um, of seeds. And he's like, listen, this is for the disciples. And so the, the truth that we see, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. It's a constant Reminder that Jesus is saying in the parables, and what he's saying is, I am opening the ears of a select few, his disciples, to hear what I'm about to say, and I have closed the ears of the others. And this parable is just for my disciples. This parable is just for, my, for the, and we know this now, believers. And he's hardened the hearts of the others, he's opening the hearts of the few. Now, this is very difficult. I mean, imagine you're the disciples and you're seeing hundreds of people and you have this excitement. All of these people now have come to hear Jesus. And he says, no, this message isn't for all of them. It's just for the select few. And now the crowds have now gone away and Jesus is now in a home with his disciples. And he's in a setting like a life group or a small group. He's just with them and the twelve. And can you imagine the discouragement that they may have felt? They may have felt, Jesus is so unkind he has this opportunity to preach in front of a hundred, hundreds of people, and he says, no, this message is only for a select fruit. So I'm going to hide this message in parables so that only my disciples can hear it. This seems so unkind. This seems so unloving. But then Jesus tells them a parable. 
in this small group setting in this home that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, his, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And what Jesus is saying, listen, this seems very difficult, but listen, what you have, disciples, is a precious, precious gift. What you have is a treasure. And this is beautiful encouragement for them. And then what he's saying is, if you have this treasure, disciples, how is your life going to revolve around this treasure? Because you notice what's happened in this parable? When this man finds this treasure, what does he do? He bases his entire life on his treasure. He goes and buys that field and he does it gladly. He goes and he sells all that he has just to obtain this field which hides that treasure. He does everything he possibly can so that he can hide this treasure. Now, he's not, he's not afraid to lose this treasure. No one in this, nowhere in this does indicate that one can lose this treasure. But the point of the parable is that this man is positioning his life around something of great value. Now, Jesus then tells another parable, and he tells it in a, in a, very, in a very similar way. He just says basically the same thing, just in a, very, in a different way. Notice what it says in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here, in this culture, you'd have pearls. They were uh, most highly valued gems in the ancient world. It's kind of like the way we would view diamonds today. And if you've ever seen the movie Blood Diamond, which I don't highly recommend, uh, especially if you have kids, don't watch it with kids uh, or popcorn. Um, but it's, it's a pretty eye-opening movie of the great lengths that someone would go through to get something of high value, something expensive like a diamond. They would kill for it. They would do anything for it. And this is the way a pearl was likely viewed here in that culture. And here you have a merchant who's got many pearls. But what happens when he he finds a pearl of great value? Well, he sells all the other pearls to gain this pearl. Does that tell you something about how valuable this pearl really is? He's willing to give up everything for this pearl. So he's treasuring one thing more than everything else. So what is similar about these two parables? What is Jesus trying to communicate to his 12 disciples in this small home? What is he trying to say? And what it is, is a very simple thing, full abandonment. And this is a very scandalous message that Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples. I want you to abandon everything for this treasure. The, 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 the kingdom of heaven is a treasure and whoever receives it will cherish it above everything else because nothing else compares to this treasure. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Salvation is a treasure and when you receive it, nothing else compares to it. Nothing else compares to it. Now, Take what we just heard in Matthew 13 and go back to Luke 12. And we're going to read Luke 12 once again. Luke 12, verse 32. 
Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Again, Jesus is here talking to his disciples. Notice what he tells his disciples. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the, hev- in, in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What does it sound like Jesus is saying here? It sounds like Jesus is saying, if you want salvation, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, what you have to do is good works. You, you, you have to sell your possessions. You have to give to the needy. That's what it means to earn salvation. It sounds like, it might, if you take this verse exactly how we just took it, out of context, it sounds that way. But if you read the next verse, it explains what he says. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's Jesus dealing with when he says, sell your possessions? What's Jesus dealing with when he says, give to the needy? He's saying, I want to know that you're all in By what your heart shows me. Jesus is after his disciples' heart. So it's not their works. He says, I'm after your heart. And then he says at the very beginning, Fear not, little flocks, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So when you receive this gift, your heart will show, if you really believe in this gift, your heart will show in demonstrate that you care deeply for this treasure. So you see the same truth in Luke 12. You see the same truth in Matthew 13. A hidden treasure. A person will sell all that he has to buy the field, uh, uh, the pearl. He'll sell all that he had to buy the pearl. It's a heart issue. It's what our heart longs to do if we love God, to position our lives around him. And Jesus telling this to his disciples in a home, 12 men, Jesus is proclaiming this. And what he's doing is he's bridging the gap between the old covenant and the new covenant, that this is about the transformation of your heart, not your rules, Not just obeying commandments. That, by the way, will destroy you because you'll realize how sinful you are. You realize you can't obey these things. What's Jesus after? Is he after how we obey commandments? No, he's after our heart. And if our heart loves him and longs for him, we will in turn obey him. Now, we see this in scripture, what Jesus is beginning to unpack. He's unpacking this idea that the kingdom of God will cause a believer, what we know today is a believer, to abandon everything because we treasure Christ above all things. That's the intent of the passage. But I want you to think, this is the way we understand it today, but when the disciples heard it, they would have never have fully grasped what he was saying. Why? Because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. The disciples would have heard this and say, that sounds strange. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure and he sells everything. He wants to buy the field. Which treasure is that? The kingdom of heaven is like a, 
a pearl and uh, the merchant wants to sell all of his pearls? I don't understand that. So what do we have to do when we find something in the Gospels? We, have to, we, we understand them often through the lenses of the teaching passages. So you see Philippians 3. Philippians 3 is the best example of what Jesus is talking about here. Philippians 3 puts meat on the skeleton, all right? So Jesus is talking in a way like, this is, this is just the skeleton. This is the outline. But Paul, in Philippians 3, he really puts meat on this. He makes us see it and feel it, all right? What does it mean to abandon everything and to treasure Christ above all? Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. Y'all awake this morning? This is good stuff, all right? Philippians 3, verse 7. It says this. This is Paul saying almost identical to what Christ is saying. But whatever I gain, I count as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as what? Rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having righteousness in my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is a staggering text that Paul talks about when he talks about abandoning everything. And what he says, and he's going back and he's saying, I counted everything that I gained as loss for Christ. Now, what, what was it that he gained? If you looked in uh, Philippians chapter 3, the context of Philippians 3 is Paul is basically giving you his resume, his Jewish resume. He's saying, listen, I, I obeyed the laws. I, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Look, all these other Jews, they don't even know where they came from. I, I am legit. I'm a thoroughbred. That's what he's saying. I'm the Michael Jordan of, of Judaism. But being a Jew, I'm a Michael Jordan. I'm not some fake LeBron. I'm, I'm like the real thing, all right? I've won the championships. I've got the, I've got the you know, he's, he's laying out his resume of what a Jew would look like, what an upstanding person would look like. And you know what he says? Rubbish. He says, other translations, dung, dung. That's what it is in comparison to Christ. He's abandoned all of that. He's torn up and burned up his resume because he treasures Christ more than his resume. And I love it because he's showing us what Jesus was telling his disciples in Matthew 13 of what what we really value and what we really treasure. So how does Paul do that? Well, it's because of what we see in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Paul acknowledged that his sin was offensive to God. He repented of his sins. He believed in Jesus Christ alone. He gave his life to Jesus. You see Paul from Acts 9, all, he's a completely different person. Completely different person. And what he says about his salvation in 2 Corinthians 5 is really the essence of what we're trying to unpack here in Matthew 13. Look at, look at what you will. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, it says this. For the love 
of Christ controls us. That's why, that's why he could do that. He was controlled by the love of Christ. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for the sake died and was raised. Verse 16. From now and on, therefore, because of that truth of the gospel, Christ's death on the cross, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What's Paul saying about his salvation? He says, salvation means that the love of Christ has controlled me, that I no longer live for myself, and I've been given a new heart. I'm a new creation. Some of your translations might say, Behold, all things become new. And what he's unpacking, he's putting, again, meat on the bones. Jesus explains what it means, what a disciple will look like. And Paul puts more weight to it when he says, you're controlled by the love of God. You no longer live for yourself. You're a new creation. He's introducing this idea of lordship in our life. And lordship is really what true salvation is. And when, when I say, when, when we talk about abandoning your everything, I'm not saying what Jesus said in the sense of that means you just sell all your stuff and you live poor your whole life and that's what it means to worship God. He's not saying that. He's saying the heart, the intent of the heart is that you would be willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. The heart is you would abandon anything for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because he is the master over your life. That's what Jesus is as you become a believer. So we hear this stuff all the time in the South and we confuse the language. So I've even heard people say, well, some of you have made Jesus your savior and not your Lord. Meaning you're still gonna go to heaven. I know you're doing whatever you want, but you're still gonna go to heaven. That's not biblical salvation. He is Savior and Lord. We cannot separate those things out. And what Jesus is saying when he talks about in Matthew 13, this is the joy that a believer has. He's showing us the joy of a believer when they meet Christ. They're willing to give up everything. They're willing to die to themselves. They're willing to follow Christ, to give up anything to follow Christ. That's what they're willing to do. And that is biblical salvation, where we, when we call on the name of the Lord, we repent of our sins, and we believe only in the gospel. But in the South, tragically, we have narrowed it down to, and I've, I've even heard, we, my wife and I just met a lady, and she's a sweetheart. But she said, my son, he's six years old. And you know what? He just decided he wants to be BFFs with Jesus. So we're going to baptize him. And I got to tell you, that is not biblical salvation, all right? I'm sure he's a sweet kid, 
Look, my son, I'm sure he wants to be BFFs with Jesus. That is not biblical salvation. And we always, we've, we've narrowed the gospel down to a silly message of do you, hell is where you burn eternally and you will always remember the bad things that you've done and you won't have any record. You, God's, you can always be constantly reminded of all the terrible things. There's wailing and there's national teeth, there's worms and there's maggots and you're just like, oh. And then they say, but do you want to be a friend with God? Who wants to be a friend with God? Who's going to say no to that, right? I have hell forever or friend with God. I think I'll be friends with God. Right. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. And so it comes down to this decision. Well, obviously, friends with God, right? Now, the problem with that is it's not biblical salvation. That is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is you repent of your sins, believe only in Christ's sacrificial death, resurrection from the grave, and when that happens, the Holy Spirit of God gives you a new heart and you become an incurable God lover. And he is the Lord and the master of your life. And he is going to finish the work that he started in you. Doesn't mean you're perfect. He's just gonna, he's gonna help you grow and fall more in love with him. That's the gospel. And we get this thing so confusing. Look, I'm a church planner. I'm a huge fan of church growth strategies and looking at church growth, reading books on church growth. And oftentimes, it's, it's intended well. Let's get lost people in the door. Let's figure out creative ways to get lost people here so we can share the gospel. The intent is fine. But oftentimes, in the same way, in the same note, you'll see something that's like, keep it light on the front end. Don't tell them the whole thing. It might scare them off, right? Now, the problem with that is you're never teaching them anything past what the demons believe. Well, the demons believe in God. Yeah, you just challenge them to believe in God. The demons believe in God. Demons believe in Jesus. You just challenge them to believe in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. The demons believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, What's the difference? Demons do not call him Lord. That's the difference. That's how huge and massive lordship is. People say, well, you're just being legalistic. You just want perfect people. Not at all. It's not at all what lordship is. Lordship is look at your heart and see what you treasure. And if your desire is not to treasure Christ above everything else, Maybe he's not your treasure. Does this mean that you won't sin? No, you're going to sin. You're going to sin. Does it mean that you won't cherish other things at times? No, you'll cherish other things. I guarantee you, you will. You'll sin, you'll cherish other things. But what does it mean? What does a believer look like? Well, a believer fights sin. James talks about how the Holy Spirit yearns jealously. And because of that, a believer will fight sin and wage war on sin. Uh, the Holy Spirit will, will fight those things that you cherish and in the end bring you closer to Jesus. And you're constantly fighting. And we even saw a couple weeks ago, there's some people who, some believers are like 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Some guys are just right in, wants to become believers. 
They're just right there. They said, look, I've, I don't have any sins anymore. It's almost like they're perfect. You know, it's like, are you serious? You know? And other times it just takes time. It takes time to grow. But look, you're going to grow if you're a believer. You're going to fight sin. You're going to begin the walk of loving God more than your sin. Why? Because he's taken a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, one that loves Christ, one that cherishes Christ, one that treasures Christ. And I have grown up uh, in the church most of my life. And I can tell you, it is so interesting the things that I've heard over the years. And I've even, I remember hearing a guy, he said, if you don't know if you're a Christian, try to think back to a time where you heard the gospel and you may have prayed a prayer and responded. And if you did that, you're, you're probably a Christian. Now, That's a crazy statement. Here's why. Let me just say it in another way. What if someone got up and said, we're going to talk about marriage. Now, for those of you in this room who don't know if you're married, (laughs) think back to a time where maybe there were some vows exchanged. There may have been a ceremony. I don't know. Some people do it differently, but maybe, hey, maybe go and look at like a, if you have a drawer, maybe like look through some of your drawers and maybe you'll find a marriage certificate and then, then it will prove whether or not you're married. I know it's confusing, right? But if you want to know if you're married, maybe you got to think back to a time where you may have had, maybe there, maybe there's a wedding album where you're there, you know, <laughs> dressed up. I mean, that's how crazy, isn't that how crazy this thing sounds? Like, I don't think I have to say If you're not sure if you're a believer, maybe think back. We don't have to say that. Why? Well, how do we know we're married? Well, I'm in the same bed with my wife every single day, right? And if I'm not, something's wrong, right? I I have a wedding band. We have children. We have the same bank account. We live in the same house. We sacrifice from one another. We compromise. We give and take. We talk. We communicate. We, we're affectionate. That's how I know. It's, it's an ongoing thing in my life. It is a part of my life. It is my life. Jessica and I, we're actually one. So how do we know if you're a believer? Well, he's the Lord over your life. You, it consumes your life in a pretty, pretty big way. You live for Christ. You position your life around Christ. Your wallet, your time, all your energy, everything, it's some, Christ is in it. He's in it. And so this is hard because it narrows it down a lot when we see it, what we see in the Southern culture. We pray the prayer and we say whatever we want, we act however we want, but we're going to heaven. No, you're not. Not. He's Savior and Lord of your life. And this is why Paul, to the Corinthian church, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself or do you not realize this is about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Test yourself to see if you're of the faith. Now, what does it look like for someone who treasures Christ and all things. What does that look like? Well, I, I can 
in order to demonstrate this more, I'm going to share your story. I have a list of things I was going to ask you this morning, but I thought this would be a better illustration for you this morning. Um, my wife and I, we've lived, I lived in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina for three years. I was a youth pastor there. And when I first got there, I had this student who came up to me and he said, you're going to have a lot of problems with me. I'm, I'm a problem child. He told me that. He was 15, 16 years old when he told me that. And he had problems with law. He, I mean, it was this, he was a tough, tough kid. He was um, somewhat handicapped. He struggled through school. I think he didn't finish past sixth grade. Uh, I tried to teach him, for instance, John 3.16. It took us three hours for him to learn for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It took him three hours to learn that. He had just had trouble learning, comprehending things, and he had a, a tough family background. And I remember, if you were to look at his life on paper, it would, make, it would seem like he would be a complete outcast to anything that we would see in our culture today. He was able to find a job. He worked in a rest area, um, and he uh, just wasn't, he was known in the community as being a really charming young man after he met Christ. He became a believer, I think, of 17, 18 years old. My wife and I actually talked about, okay, when you know, he gets older and his parents can't take care of him, we'll, we'll try to take care of him in some way. We actually talked about that. And uh, I'll never forget, he, um, he called me one uh, weekend, and I was, doing, I was in a wedding, and uh, I, I didn't answer my phone. The next few hours, his family members called me, and Apparently, he was in a motorcycle accident. He was on a moped and skidded out in the road, and it uh, was killed instantly um, by a transfer truck. And I will never forget just the panic of some people, but also, and this is strange, the joy of others in the sense of he's with Christ. And I, I had to do the funeral, and everyone was like apologizing to me for having to do the funeral. Here's a 19-year-old who didn't have much to offer. And he was killed in a tragic accident. And I'm so sorry, Ben, you have to do that. What's weight on you? I'm like, this is the easiest funeral I could ever do. Why? Because when you looked at his life, he didn't have anything. All he had was Christ. That's all he had was Christ. He, he, didn't, have, he didn't have an education. He didn't, he didn't have a great job. He wasn't married and so when I got up, it was, it was just a love. It was like an alley-oop pass. I was able to say many kings and queens, rich, wealthy, powerful people will not have a funeral as meaningful as this one. Why? It's because Grant treasures Christ above all things. And it's obvious. Everyone sees it. Because Grant would give up anything for Christ. And it was the easiest thing in the world. Now, here's what's interesting about that funeral. In the room, you could tell who the believers were immediately. Non-believers had great sorrow and great pain. Believers wept because they were definitely going to miss their friend. But they also wept of joy because they said, he is going to see Jesus. He's in heaven with Jesus. And that is what he lived for. And that is what he will spend his eternal eternity doing. It was, a, it was a law of pass. And so this is why it's so significant of treasuring Christ. We don't have to have everything. We don't have to have all these possessions and all these things. It's really about 
treasuring Christ. A simple, simple way. A simple life, just treasuring Christ. So my question is, do you treasure Christ? How, how in your life are you positioning your life, your future around the gospel? How has the gospel impacted you to make decisions around who you spend your time with, what you spend your time doing, what you spend your time saying? Is there fruit in your life is what I'm asking. Do you treasure him? So this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you're not a believer, I just invite you to repent and believe the gospel, to cry out that the Holy Spirit of God would give you the faith to believe in him alone. If you're a believer this morning, maybe this morning you just need to be challenged to hear that Christ is enough, that Christ is your treasure, and that maybe this morning God wants to kill some idols in your life that, that, are, that are warring against the treasure that you long to have in, in Christ. So this morning, my prayer is that we would leave treasuring Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us get a clear vision of what that looks like in our lives. Or as I think through...